to episode 428 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Andrew Swafford. Michael O'Malley. And Reed Ramsey. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we're going to conclude our Horror for Kids series with 2022's Wendell and Wild, which is now on Netflix. Um, so if you haven't watched it, pause this right now. Pop that Netflix button on. They're actually advertising it too, which is surprising. I opened my Netflix ad app and it was the first thing it showed me. They they're getting ads in this thing too, so it's it's all over the place. Cemetery sponsored by Netflix. This <laughs> is sponsored by Monkey Paw Production. You know, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. Speaking of lights, Michael. <laughs> wow. Ali. <laughs> uh. Yeah, so movies we saw in part one. Uh, I've been watching a lot of good movies recently, but I saw one bad movie recently, and that is Lightyear, the Disney Pixar film from earlier this year um, that, to quote, well, maybe not quote, to paraphrase the opening title card, this is the movie that Andy, what's his name, saw in 1995 that... What is his know. name? Is it, does Andy have a last name? I don't think he has a last name. I'll look. I'll look for you. I got you. Continue. Uh, that Andy of Toy Story fame watched in 1995 uh, that made him fall in love with the Buzz Lightyear character so much that he was willing to replace Woody with a Buzz Lightyear toy. Um, and so, over the next 100 minutes, you see what movie could have so impacted this child that they would convince their parents to buy a Space Ranger toy. And um, this movie sucks. So, like all children... How does does the CG of this movie exist in 1995 while Toy Story looks like Toy Story? So, here's my thought. Is that Toy Story is in and of itself a CGI world. And so, it's not actually CG in the Toy Story world, Mm. right? It would have been... That's a good thought. This movie's already weird on several fronts, but it really would have been really weird if they had done like a uh, live action. Um, a live action. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so like all children who are six or however old Andy's supposed to be at the time, like he has terrible taste in movies um, because this movie's terrible. Um, there's a few reasons why this movie is terrible. Um, first of all, it's just uh, the the character of Buzz Lightyear is a complete nothing. Um, in the toy, in the original Toy Story, the joke of Buzz Lightyear is that he is a generic like ripoff of like Buck Rogers, Star Wars, like all. It's he's just like a generic mashup of like all this stuff, you know. Um, and like when Woody reads like you know the side of the box, it's like basically like copy pasted from like the Star Wars opening crawl, right? Like that's like part of the joke of Buzz Lightyear is that he thinks he's so important, but one, he's a toy, and two, he's not a particularly notable toy, right? Um, And uh, this movie is supposed to be like, you know, introducing this character as he would actually be narratively present. So he's not a fake space ranger anymore. He's a real space ranger. And he is boring. There's my daughter is crying in the other room. Don't worry, my wife has her, but I'm just saying you might pick it up on the audio. Um, She's also watching Lightyear. Just saying. Uh, She's she's crying because Lightyear is not very interesting. Um, So like. You have a movie in which we're supposed to be invested in two characters, Buzz Lightyear and then um, Buzz Lightyear's uh, like uh, 
partner sec like uh supervisor or something like this i i don't remember like the the connection like specifically in terms of rank um and what happens is buzz lightyear and this other person get stranded on this planet and they have to try to escape the planet but they're having such a hard time escaping the planet that they basically end up like establishing a colony on the planet um until they can like rebuild their like intergalactic ship uh to uh escape and uh eventually like buzz lightyear's partner becomes like like makes a gets a family and everything on this colony and kind of gets established whereas buzz lightyear has remained driven on like i'm going to escape this planet um and through circumstances that are important to talk about like buzz lightyear eventually like tries so hard to escape the planet that like he fixes the hyperdrive but it's not quite working right and so like he goes at the speed of light and or near the speed of light and because of relativity time dilates and he shoots into the future and when he lands again it is like a hundred years in the future or something like that and everyone he knows is dead and it's just like the great grandchildren of the people he knew and so he is the emotional arc that he's supposed to be going through is like learning to deal with like loss um like he has to go through like interstellar style and look at all these logs and watch as his like uh old coworker like grows old and eventually dies and stuff um and so we're supposed to be you know moved and invested in this idea that buzz lightyear is a man out of time having to deal with like the people he knew are no longer around and also having to deal with like how to reconnect with these people who know who he is as like almost a like a legend because he just disappeared because he was time traveling for like a hundred years. Um, but the problem is Buzz Lightyear is not an interesting vessel for this character arc because he is so boringly written. He's voiced by Chris Evans and I have liked Chris Evans in the past, but he is in like 100% like late period Marvel Captain America mode, you know, where he is just like square jawed and uh, uninteresting in terms of his voice acting, right? It's a complete like blank blank slate in terms of like voice acting like this could be any like square jawed protagonist and you don't even have to change the script uh or you don't even have to change like uh the voice acting like this could be captain america this could be something else um so that's bad buzz lightyear is not an interesting character the second thing that's bad is that this movie refuses to let us forget that it is tied to toy story um and by this i mean it's not only has that opening title card, which tells you, hey, Andy watched this movie. Um, but By the way, I'm on the Wikipedia page for this movie, and it does have the title card quoted. Oh, and my gosh, please. To quote it word for word is even funnier. It reads, in 1995, a boy named Andy got a Buzz Lightyear toy for his birthday, period. It was from his favorite movie, period. This is that movie. Yes. <laughs> It's, it's a real, like, today we call them computers kind of title card. Yeah. Uh, but, um, but, yeah, so not only does it give us that title card, um, but secondly, it refuses to let us forget that it is connected to the Toy Story universe because it keeps quoting Toy Story in the movie. Um, and it, it makes sense on a certain level to have the Buzz Lightyear character say the lines that, like, the Buzz Lightyear toy says, like, in his, like, voice box. Uh, because presumably that's like lines from the movie or whatever. Like that kind of makes sense in universe. But they quote other things too. Like they quote line, like whole interactions 
um, from like Woody and Buzz, like the whole like, you know, remember in Toy Story when um, Buzz Lightyear wakes up from being in uh, his box and he's on the bed and he's like, um, Star Command, come in, Star Command. Do you read me? Why won't they answer me? Uh, and then he like bounced on the bed is like the terrain seems rather spongy or something. like this movie quotes like that whole thing, including up to the point where Woody shows up. But it's not Woody in this movie. It's a different character saying the Woody lines, you know, where like, you know, Buzz Lightyear's like, there doesn't seem to be any sign of intelligent life anywhere. And then the character pops up is like, hello. And like he doesn't get his it cuts off before it gets to the like where Andy's toys like lines. But like it is a surprising amount of Toy Story dialogue in this like one scene. And then that happens multiple times throughout the movie. And it is bizarre. Like it is deeply bizarre there's like a fight and they're like you've got a friend in me (laughs) (laughs) like it's not quite that like dissonant but it is it is really really weird and uncanny um to watch these things be parroted in this movie because like for the most part this movie is not very connected to the toy story mythology which would make sense because all the toys are from different properties but also like I don't know, it's so strange to constantly reference a, like, the outside... Like, if we're imagining that this movie came out in 1994, 1995, whenever Andy saw this, it is referencing things that happen in the future after this movie was made. Yeah. Like, that... It it simply does not work. Where those characters are unwittingly just reenacting a script from another yeah movie. so it like conceptually yeah. doesn't work but moreover it is distracting as hell like it is really really hard like i went into this movie not really expecting it to be very good because like the premise is so baddie and just goofy and it is so obviously like we are trying to maintain the brand of like buzz lightyear um, without having to make another toy story movie like that is like very like this movie is very nakedly that like just from the advertising campaign. So I went into it not expecting it to be good just on that. But I was not expecting like the movie doing two very weird things at the same time, is which is one tying itself so closely to the first Toy Story movie, while two having nothing at all meaningfully connecting to the first Toy Story movie. It is simply like quoting the first Toy Story movie while otherwise being a movie that has nothing to do with Toy Story. Not any of the themes, not any of the, uh, like, characters, not even, like, the character of Buzz Lightyear, like, that, like, uh, kind of deluded arrogance that, like, the Buzz Lightyear character has in the Toy Story movie that's kind of really funny and is tense. He doesn't even have that. He's, like, a lot nicer in this. Like, he doesn't really even feel like the character that he is when he wakes up as a toy. Um... I'm sorry. I, you guys probably hear the baby, right? Uh, well, okay. I promise that she's fine. Um, so at any rate, that's weird and bad of the movie. And like, there's just nothing in the movie that convinces me that like, there's no spark of life. Um, because the movie that this is, is bad. And also it's conceptually bad in terms of it's just simply brand management my thought is how this movie came about is that this was a unaffiliated space movie being developed at Pixar. And at a certain point in, early in the production, they realized this doesn't have enough juice in the tank to be a standalone movie. We got to punch it up somehow. And so they like, they like s- pasted Buzz Lightyear on top of it because otherwise it doesn't make sense that this is how they would conceptualize 
Like what a Buzz no, Lightyear it movie. It makes sense to me that they would like start the movie from the ground up as like a brand management move. Like I don't think that Pixar like gets too deep into a movie without there being like an original. What idea. I'm saying is the Buzz Lightyear stuff is so superficial. Like if you took out the Toy Story lines and you changed the name of the character from Buzz Lightyear to like you know whatever Captain Captain Smith uh you know Space Voyager and then like there's a reference to Emperor Zerg that ends up being kind of a fake out and you could just change the design of him and call him something different and this would not scan as a Buzz Lightyear character like the only thing that makes it a Buzz Lightyear character is obviously looks like Buzz Lightyear and then there are those Toy Story quoting lines like there is nothing that connects him to the broader like I don't know it just it it feels so I don't know, like, there's that scene at the beginning, like, the opening scene of Toy Story 2 is in purportedly inside the Buzz Lightyear universe, but it's a video game, right? And it has a very particular tone, and, like, it's kind of like this... It's, it's cool. I want to watch cool. that movie. This movie doesn't... It's This movie just isn't just not that. This movie doesn't even feel like it's that. It doesn't even feel like in the same conversation as that. Like, it... I don't know, like, it's really hard to describe, but it... I mean, it, I mean, it quite possibly could have been that they were just like, we need another Buzz Lightyear movie here. Why don't you write a Buzz Lightyear script? Like, maybe that's it. But if that's the case, the person who wrote this, or people who wrote this, I, I can't remember who uh, is responsible, but they didn't do a lot to make it feel like a Buzz Lightyear movie. They were relying on the fact that they quote Buzz Lightyear lines and then that he looks like the Buzz Lightyear toy to carry that idea. Um I don't know. This movie sucks. Um, I have been a defender of late period Pixar, a moderate defender. And I will say like, this is easily their worst movie, like far surpassing cars to, or undercutting cars to, cause there's like nothing, there's nothing going on here. It's not even creative visually. The, the like kind of cool, interesting visual flourishes that the last few Pixar movies have had have been walked back tremendously. And we're just back in the, boring photorealism but without cool designs like even a lot of pixar movies that are just doing the photorealism thing have like inventive designs for that photorealism to render and that's not even well, here well that's the dance that's the that's the bummer because honestly it's not like pixar's you know like we've talked about luca and turning red are two really good movies oh man yeah those are two great animated movies that kind of utilize that so it's kind of a bummer that they fell back into you know Let's just slap brand recognition on it and make it. Not just movie. that. This is the first Pixar movie that's been back in the like theatrical release since the pandemic. Like Luca and Turning Red are like interesting, idiosyncratic movies and both just got shoveled onto Disney Plus. Whereas this thing, which I think pretty severely underperformed at the box office, to which I say, for once, audiences made the right choice. Um <laughs> I don't know, like it's it's dispiriting and a bummer like that. This is just, this movie is just kind of a shell for like a really not, it's not even interesting fan service. That's what I like. That's what I'm saying. If like, if you want to make a fan service, like, like, you know, maintain the buzz, Lightyear brand, like, you know, it's not even doing a good job of that. So don't see, but don't see Lightyear. go and watch uh, turning red or Luca. That's true. Go to Disney Plus, and if you see Lightyear, go get that. Get the hell out go, of here. No, 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 no. Go to Google, 
So type in <laughs> turning red online stream free and find the like one two three movies.com once because disney does not deserve your they your uh, disney plus subscription they are doing they're not even doing neutrality with it they're doing evil with it pro pro uh pro piracy. this podcast all right well if you uh if you do that you might get a uh ticket in a way from the government but that ticket isn't a paradise like this one reads about to give us i don't even know how to follow that up um okay ticket to paradise that was really good i wasn't expecting it i thought you had really thrown all your eggs in the light basket but um weird metaphor uh but okay Ticket to Paradise is the new uh, George Clooney and Julia Roberts movie, which, as I may say later, like, if these two, like, just made a movie once a year together, good or bad, I don't really care, I think it would be, like, good for society. They could make a light year, even, and it might still be overall good. Um, <laughs> let's let's calm that. down there, Reed, okay? <laughs> yeah, sorry. But the two of the, like, they're just really fun. But basically the premise is that they've been divorced for, like, the, like, 20 years. Like, they were barely married for, like, five years, had a daughter. They hate each other. Julia Roberts jokes that she tries to never even be in the same time zone as George Clooney's character, who I, I don't remember their names. I probably won't refer to them as their characters' names. Um, but she jokes that they don't even get in the same time zone, but they have to go to their daughter's graduation. Basically is the first time they interact in like a long time. And then their daughter who this, the plot is really confusing, but her daughter is like leaving law school and going on a trip to Bali. And while she's in Bali, this is Caitlin Deaver, by the way, who's, who's good in it. But, um, while she's in Bali, she falls in love with this mysterious Balinese man um and <laughs> decides to get married in like four days time as all these things always go and so george clooney and julia roberts characters are flying there to like quote unquote support her but also try to sabotage the wedding together they're like really with each other on this one um but basically if that premise doesn't sell you that it's just like all these people in a beautiful location um it is it is genuinely funny, and I think it's helpful to know that the movie's, like, way goofier than I expected. And it made sense at the end when I saw who directed it, who is not a name everyone's going to be familiar with, but Ole Parker. He directed the great Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, oh, yeah. which is a really goofy movie and, like, only works if you really buy into it. And this movie's pretty similar, I think. Um, it's very silly and... George Clooney is not playing, like, he's not even playing, like, the kind of, like, I don't know, how would you even describe kind of George Clooney the last 10 years? Just kind of, like, smarmy. Like, he is a little smarmy, but he's also just, like, a really goofy dad, and that's just kind of enjoyable, because he's really, like, easy to laugh at, and, like, you can also, like, uh... He's just been playing Mr. Fox. Yeah, that's a pretty good way to put it. He's kind of just been playing Mr. Fox. But here it's, like, he's gone... This is closer to Burn After... Burn After Reading than Mr. Fox. Sorry, I almost dro- <laughs> dropped the name of the podcast I had years ago. Burn After Watching. <laughs> oh my gosh. Drop. Wow. Really throwback there. Shout out to Burn After Watching. Yeah. They don't exist anymore. <laughs> uh, so, 
This is a little closer to... Search Apple Podcasts for Burn After Watching, everyone. Yeah, I think another, like, random... I think someone else took the name over after, like, expired or whatever. I don't know. I searched it every, every couple of years. But, um, basically, uh, this he's closer to, like, his Burn After Reading self. And Julia Roberts is, like, the way you always see her, essentially. Especially, like, she's more like what you see, like, the Oceans movie. She's just, like, really fed up with him, like... Uh, but you can tell they have, like, really good chemistry still because that's, like, how they are as actors. Sorry, my phone's getting blown up. Apparently someone's trying to sign into my mom's account or something. Um, so. they, they heard about Burn After Watching and they had to, you know, get in the back door. <laughs> but um, I just have to point out real quickly that old Parker is also was married to Thandie Newton. I had no idea. Like, what are we... Like, I just, like, look... I looked, so I'm like, who's Ole Parker? Director of... Director of Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. Also, Thandwee Newton's former spouse. I like that anyone's first name yeah, is Ole. But... Like, like it's like it's a like it's like an old man in like a country town. Like, oh, that's old Parker over there. <laughs> Instead, he's a British man. <laughs> man, I mean, he kind of directs as if he's like that guy, the crazy guy in the town. I'm old Parker. <laughs> but literally, his name popped up on the screen like after the honest. I won't ruin anything for anyone, but like the silliest moment in the movie is actually like literally the final frame. It. The movie, like, really delves into sentimentality maybe a little too much throughout, but then, like, in the end, it just fully commits to, like, goofy, these people are all fake, this is all fake, like, just enjoy this weird experience we're on in this movie, and I, I think I prefer that a lot of times to the sentimentality. Um, I, think it's, I think it's really unfortunate that George Clooney was, like, in ER and had to be, like, sultry and sexy, when he possibly could have been a reincarnate of Cary Grant, and that would have been wonderful. Yeah, I know. Only the Coen brothers seem to have cracked that code, I think. Like, 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 just think of how, like, he's, like, super handsome plus super funny. Like, he could have been, like, Cary Grant, like, you know, thir- late 20s, 30s, 40s era Cary Grant. Just, like, good solid like like this type of movie sounds like something where it's like yeah just slap two pe- likable yeah. people in it well it definitely you know. also like like it has a lot of those kind of screwball tones as well um i would never say like fully goes into that it um i wish it did that would be my oh barker doesn't have that screwball <laughs> it's a good screwball <laughs> yeah premise. yeah but uh i wish like i wish it went into it more and just like really kind of went full-fledged screwball comedy instead of instead of like semi-conventional rom-com that's really enjoyable to watch which is like where i landed like i really really did enjoy it and i mean it the sentimentality worked on me at least like i was at least invested enough to where like i was tearing up at different moments like i really yeah i mean it is an enjoyable movie i would i would highly recommend although critics seem to be really disliking it uh so i don't know what that says about me hey don't listen to the critics they're also saying that Lightyear might be woke. That's so. true. They, I've heard that. I've heard that. I've heard it too. It is not. I was nearly asleep <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> right back to Lightyear. Ticket to Paradise in theaters now. I don't have a whole lot to say. It's just a very, very pretty, fun, enjoyable movie. Uh, the romance you know, works. Sometimes we need that. 
I'd, I'd recommend if you just want like a good kind of escape movie. I don't, I don't really want to, I don't mean to like bring us back to Lightyear, but I totally forgot that I forgot to tell y'all what Andy's last name is. He has how, a canon last name. And how, and how disappointed it is. Oh, His yep. name is actually Andrew Andy Davis. Wait, 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 wait. Is Andy like in quotation marks like it's his like a yeah. nickname or is that it's his Andrew Davis okay so it's not like no, his, his middle Andrew name Davis. is Andy and his first name is Andrew no 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 Andrew Davis Andrew Davis how, like how much more disappointing can a name be Andrew said something that made me interested to look up Chris Evans age for some reason or maybe something happened where I was like how old would Chris Evans be if like this was all real and he really was in this movie anyone have any guesses how old he'd be in 1995 I don't know, because he was in, the earliest Chris Evans I can think of is he's in Not Another Teen Movie, right? And that's like uh, early 2000s, is that? He's, well, all I know is he's, four, all I know is he's 41, in he's possibly dating a 25-year-old. I think he would be 20. <laughs> Ooh. No. Hmm. <laughs> 15. Woo! All right, well, uh. Yeah, yeah, for real. She couldn't have seen light. Yet. Yikes! Okay. Someone who was he would have been fourteen. That was a lot there. Fourteen. <laughs> some 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 lady named Al Alba Baptista, a Portuguese actress. Wait, fourteen? Hmm. I mean, you know, <laughs> maybe not. Okay. Who can say? Yeah, you know, like he's also probably a CIA operative, so. 100%. Y'all probably saw the memes of like uh, when the Buzz Light. I'm sorry, this is another Lightyear thing, but uh, when Lightyear first came out, like when the trailer came out, like all the memes about like Buzz Lightyear looks like he turned off his body camera or like Buzz Lightyear looks like he. <laughs> like... Anyway, so. Yeah. I, yeah I, I just. Uh, Andrew Davis, y'all. Andrew Davis. Um, I don't have a good. Uh, good transition here so i'm gonna talk about city slickers (laughs) uh city slickers is a movie that was actually made in the 90s it's 91 so andy possibly could have seen it we don't know as a wee lad (laughs) (laughs) at one point andrew davis's father and then he bought his billy crystal action figure yeah (laughs) and he would have been so much cooler honestly if he had seen city slickers Can you imagine what would have happened? What if Toy Story was about Woody having to like have a battle of wits with a Billy Crystal action figure? Oh my figure? gosh! I would watch that's that. Free, that's a free idea for you there, Pixar. If you want to run with that, you can, yeah, there's a better way to brand manage Toy Story for sure. I'm not sure any of the Pixar execs made it past the piracy ad in the middle. <laughs> They're just busy yeah, like on their phones, like contacting their CIA You gotta get them. Evans, we have a job for you. <laughs> he's over there, like, sorry, I'm you know banging my daughter's friend. So, um, <laughs> so city slickers, city slickers, um, came out in '91. Uh, I need to watch. There's a sequel to this as well, but um, the premise is you have um, three. I don't know what their... I forgot what their businesses are. Well, Billy Crystal, like... 
sells the ads at a radio station or something i don't know but they're like business people in new york and they're just like why do why does our life suck we don't have any fun in our lives anymore and so that's my billy crystal impression um i expect you to break that out several more times in this review what's the deal I th- but every but that impression just turns into like Jerry Seinfeld. It's like, what's the deal with Ombolting? You know. Um, uh, but yeah. So so what? So he and his friend, these these two other friends of his, they have vacations where they go and do like insane stuff to kind of like revitalize their will to live or whatever. So the movie opens and you're in Pantalona at the running of the bulls, and like Billy Crystal and Bruno Kirby and Daniel Stern are running in the running of the bulls um so this one they decide to take this uh at this point uh billy it's billy crystal is is kind of like a little bit you know unhappy with his job his kind of you know figuring really kind of struggling at home his son is jake gyllenhaal by the way which is crazy like first how old is jake Jake gyllenhaal Gyllenhaal. it's his first role in a movie my gosh um but uh he's just kind of he's just not He's not doing great at home, and so <clears throat> at the same time, Bruno Kirby's character has just recently gotten married, and then Daniel Stern's character is is getting a divorce from his wife, and so they're like, we got to get away, and they decide to go on this Wild West experience vacation where, they don't say where, but it looks, seems like, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, something like that, and there's they have like a, a handler who teaches them how to... Uh, uh, kind of work as a ranch hand, and then they're all gonna collectively take the this uh, this group of cattle from uh, from one point to another place. Um, and that's gonna be like the experience. And so um, the majority of the, the first part of the movie is just like them learning how to. It's a lot of, a lot of slapstick of like I don't know, you know, these New York you know city slickers, these New York uh, people are that they don't know how to do the the way of the cowboy and things like that. Um, but it does open this like i think he won um i'm not gonna look it up i'm pretty sure though he won or was nominated for an oscar uh jack palance plays the the kind of veteran um old time like looks like he's on a cigarette ad uh cowboy who um just kind of threatens them just with his presence because he's just he's like the peak in their minds of masculinity um, but it's pretty overall. It's pretty funny, you know. You you get into like the actual journey of taking the cows uh, places, but it it's good. It's it's peak. Um, you know, it's kind of Billy Crystal and in, in kind of his peak time of of making movies. Bruno Kirby, I always am entertained with. He just like he's just he he's just a real nice. You know, rest in peace. A nice, you know, side character for the for the lead character a you know aces and in, in when harry met sally aces and good uh good morning vietnam he's aces here also just great um and then daniel stern kind of gives the more most interesting performance of the three is just kind of like this semi unhinged guy who also is uh like a little bit suicidal it gets way more kind of dark and uh uh like internal internal kind of processing grief and aging and like it gets way more into that than you kind of expect from like a hee-haw uh 
'90s comedy, which is actually, and I think it kind of it lands better than you think it would. Um, but yeah, overall, overall pretty solid. I think this is this is some this is good Billy Crystal. It's it's better than like now where he kind of just the the stuff he's put out later is more. Um, you know, my time has passed, and these kids don't get it. Um, this one's pretty good. It's on it's on Netflix right now, but uh, City Slickers. If you want like a nice little fun, this little fun comedy, it's the way to go. I'm trying to look at who else is in this. Yeah, it's good. Uh, the other one I wanted to talk about is uh, Werewolves Within. Uh, this one came out a couple, or last year, couple last year. Um, it's based on it's based on a V a VR game by Ubisoft, uh, which is of course just based on a you know pe- game people have played just out loud forever. Werewolf. Wait, so this is the game is the adaptation of Werewolf, like the cart, like the, the just the, like the party game. I don't think I made that connection when we were talking earlier. Yeah, I don't. I don't know either. But it does start with this big old Ubisoft um, logo. Ubisoft. You know, in some Ubisoft. ways, this is just like Lightyear. Like this is that game. <laughs> this is the game. <laughs> this is the game that you watched that inspired you to play werewolf, or that inspired you to like love werewolves or something. And. <laughs> In, in 2011, <laughs> Andy Davis was a freshman in college. He spent many a night playing a, a game. Boy a boy named Andy, Andy was a freshman in college. <laughs> this is that movie. <laughs> um, so the, the plot of this is there's this proposed pipeline that is creating... Um, well, first, Sam Richardson's character moves into the small town... Uh, he's going to be the the local U, uh, rain, U, U.S. Ranger for the town, um, and when he gets there, there's this proposed pipeline where that's kind of split the town. Half of them are, are you know pro pipeline, half of them you know don't want it to ruin the environment and their small town aesthetic. And so then you know you have a, a snowstorm hits it during the snowstorm. Uh, something something mysterious takes out all the generators around town so there's no power all around town so everybody is staying at this kind of old hunting hotel lodge thing Um, and so it's very much like it's very you know Clue um, like like all these different personalities all shoved into one place Agatha Christie I think I saw people on Letterboxd kind of comparing it to Knives Out which is rude because it's not you know Knives Out is actually good um but then it kind of comes, you know, along the way, somebody like determines, well, one of the people here has to be a werewolf because that's what's terrorizing this whole place. And so the rest of the movie is kind of who's the werewolf type situation. Um, and, you know, outside of outside of Sam Richardson, you have um, you got Milana Vintrub, who people probably know as the uh, AT&T girl. Uh, she's fine. She's super hot. Um, good for her. Outside of that, it's a bunch of kind of UCB, uh, 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 improv-y type people who you've probably seen as like side, like as like side or 
one-off characters in various sitcoms, tele, you know, TV shows, sitcoms, or indie movies over the past decade. Um, so, it there's not. I don't know. This uh, it's it's kind of it can't really decide if it wants to be scary or be funny. It's not really either. Cause it's not really a scary movie, and then. It's not necessarily funny. It's just kind of one of those, I don't know. I get tired of these movies where it's like, let's just improv. Or, or like, let's kind of script the improv to a degree. Um, so explain to me, like, so the, the game Werewolf, I've not played the VR game, but like the game Werewolf, the whole point of that game is to put you in the context of a situation that may be actually in a movie or a book, like a kind of murder mystery sort of thing, right? So isn't adapting that into a game that gets adapted into a movie, isn't that just bringing it full circle and it's just a regular mystery game, like mystery, mystery movie? Yeah, I mean, that's what it is. It, the whole thing's kind of who's who's the werewolf. And like that seems like it would have less interest if you don't have a sense of agency inside yeah, of it. Yeah, like, because that's not what's fun. That's what's yeah. fun with it is it's a base. It's a very basic mystery, but that you get to participate in. And that it like is taking your established dynamics with the friends you're playing it with into account. Like it's a social deduction game. You have to be able to read your friends. Um, well, it's kind of like that, except you don't know any of the people and you're not involved. So kind of like a regular mystery movie. Regular whodunit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's like Knives Out. It's, it's, it's kind of whatever. It's, it's not that great. Is Sam Richardson in it doing like kind of his normal shtick, like his Veep, Veep character, basically? Yeah, yeah, he kind of does his thing, and he's fine. You know, it's not his fault. Um, I, think, I think he's pretty funny, but yeah, no, I like Sam Richardson. Um, I mean, this is no baby of the year, but it's pretty. It's still, you know, it's he's still entertaining. There's no Bart Harley Jarvis in this one, <laughs> but. Anyway, werewolves among wait, <laughs> werewolves, werewolves among, among us. Werewolves within. Werewolf, werewolf they should have done that. Just throw them all together. Werewolves, <laughs> werewolves within. Man, I just had a, a sad thought, which is when? How many years until there is an Among Us movie? I feel like that's the question happen. is: Will bet you, like? Bet there, bet, bet you this how much? How, how many legs do does Among Us have? You know, will it exist as a phenomenon? How many legs? I don't does know. It what, have? What's the? What's the? Does Among Us have enough legs to make it to movie production thing, or is it going to be like a fad, you know? I think the Angry Birds movie came out after the fad this was over. This isn't real. This, I this bet there's is, already an Among Us movie, like, in production. or like. In- there, this, this isn't real, though. I'm calling bullshit on this. What? Yeah, this isn't real. This isn't real. This is This is made up. That's fake. Somebody had one where it was like Among Us coming in twenty twenty three. That's not real. That's fake. You're oh, a liar. it's from like a fan wiki thing. Yeah. Idea, idea wiki <laughs> fandom. <laughs> you besmirched the name of idea wiki <laughs> fandom. <laughs> no, it looks like I guess at one point there was like a fake rumor going around that Netflix was making a an Among Us movie, but that's Wouldn't not that true. be an amazing like premise for the release of an Among Us movie though, is if the Among Us movie is actually just fake and we have to figure out it's how it's fake. <laughs> well this this fake movie had it being directed by Kenneth Branagh, so uh <laughs> 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 the, 
That'd be oh amazing. My God. That sounds just fake enough it's to be real. by Kenneth Branagh and written by James Wan. So that's when I was just like, this seems, this isn't real. <laughs> Both of those directors will attach themselves to fucking anything. Yeah. This is like after Belfast, he had to do one for the studio. <laughs> he did do one for the studio. He did the, 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 the Nile, the other Perot per- movie. That was before Bre- Belfast, though. He's still paying his dues. Oh, well, he's making another Perot movie, so... <laughs> He's he's got a trilogy that thing. This is basically an Among Us movie then. <laughs> in a way. See, we can get Poirot in a spaceship. It's, you know, it's 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 an Among Us movie for the olds, you know. <laughs> uh, the right. Among Us. Let's let's take a quick break and then we'll be back talking about Wendell and Wild in in part two. episode 428 of Cinematary. In this part, we're going to be concluding our Young <sighs> Horror for Kids series with 2022. Young critics watch horror for kids. <laughs> yeah, young young viewers watch. Yeah, it's it's. I'll I'll figure out eventually. Um, Wendell Wild 22. Uh, old men watch kids <laughs> movies. <laughs> Uh, Wendell and Wild, directed by uh, Henry Selick, from a script by Selick and Jordan Peele. The film stars Peele, Keegan Michael Key, Lyric Ross, Angela Bassett, Ving Rames, and James Hong. The two devious demon brothers, Wendell and Wild, have to face their arch enemy with the help of the nun, Sister Helly, who is notorious for expelling demons. However, the brothers are not only plagued by her, but also by her. What? <laughs> That's not the plot at all. No, no, it's uh, it's cat, cat. You know, she summons her two demons, uh, Wendell and Wild, and then uh, they spread mayhem on this town that's trying to be uh, turned into a private prison. There you go. Um, Henry Selick's admiration for Key and Peele's sketch comedy series led to their involvement with the film, with Peele taking an active role as producer and co-writer, emphasizing the subversive horror comedy ethos with people of color that he's established through his Monkey Paw Productions label. In an interview with the AV Club, Selick said, The original story was mine from 20 years ago. It was inspired by my grown sons. When they were little and acting badly, I drew them as demons. I wrote a seven-page story, and the movie that was grown from that with uh, with huge input from Jordan is still based on that. I'm actually really good at visual gags, coming with the coming up with visual humor, and it's something we in animation are no, are kind of known for. But I'm wide open to what the rest of the input is. I choose I chose to make the demons look like Key and Peele, and I felt like in a way it would be like back on the show. Key and Peele were able to play any gender, any age, any situation, totally transform themselves, and I felt like well this will be an even bigger transformation. Uh, for animation supervisors Michael Lamont and Jeff Riley, both who were who worked with uh, Leica, this reunion with Selick was a DIY-like departure from Coraline, with a smaller crew working in a more confined studio space. For Wendell Wild, they embraced a rougher, more handmade style of stop motion, in which maintaining the 2D co- look of the concept art was encouraged by Selick, as was retaining the seam lines on the puppet faces. 
Uh, another one of Selleck's 2D-inspired ideas involved the souls doomed to ride the Scream Fair's torturous attractions. To achieve this, the desired cutout animation look, the puppets were made out of tin and then coated with silicon and affixed with magnets and bolts with, for a flowing, ripply effect. Quote, I worked out uh, an animation cycle of them rippling, Riley said. We 3D scanned it and then printed out hundreds of replacement cycles for the small ones in groups and wide shots, which were about an inch tall. They were super fragile because they were so small. After Coraline, Selleck felt stop-motion animation had become so smooth that it had become indistinguishable from computer, computer animation, defeating some of the purpose of stop-motion. He decided to allow flaws such as keeping the seam lines on replacement faces visible and shooting fewer frames per second in some scenes. Except for a stop-motion software called Dragon Frame, he used more or less the same types of tools and techniques he used in Coraline more than a decade earlier. On working together again, Keegan-Michael Key said to Entertainment Weekly, quote, It's like you had a dance partner for years and years and years. You come back, learn a new routine, but then you know you're not going to do the routine again for another five months. It's like riding a bike feeling. When you spend that much time with somebody, especially a person that you lived with, we lived together for four months when we first started our career together at Mad TV. There's a real connection, and there are times when it gets downright symbiotic. It was just locking those pieces in again. In a review this year, Variety said Wendell and Wilde actually has a few things to say about teenage grief, the privatization of prisons, and raising your parents from the dead, but mostly it's content to fly off in an elegantly cracked directions. In all elegantly cracked directions. The LA Times said Wendell and Wilde has the telltale Selleck look, this, the distended character designs, the expressionistic lighting, and the willingness to let the puppets resemble puppets, and the movements to be a little choppy to underline the handmade quality. There are distinctively quirky touches throughout, like Kat's love of Afropunk music, her bond with a crafty nun, and her wary friendship with several private school classmates who at first appear to be snobs but actually prove brave and helpful. For Selleck, animation is never just about uh, making pictures move. It's about giving his images a beating heart, alive with the possibility that the weak can be strong, the grotesque can be good, and that nothing dies forever. And the New York Times said, why not try to resurrect the dead, collect some demons in glass jars, or summon a pair of demon brothers from all among the souls of the danged? These seem like the ingredients for a wicked fun time, but the devilish new stop-motion horror comedy from Netflix, Wendell and Wild, can't get these pieces to double, double, toil and trouble into a cohesive dish of entertainment. On that note, let's talk about Wendell and Wild. Um, Have you guys seen the Key and, Key and Peele like, church ladies skit? I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to... I'm gonna, Remember the Key and Peele Church Lady skit where they like are destroying the devil? That was my initial thought watching this. Um, I'm going to start, Andrew, you and Reed, since you all technically caught the first ever screening of this movie at TIFF. So. Uh, Reed, you want to take it? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, like that, that does kind of sum up like the hype. And I think Andrew and I fell kind of on different sides of that hype as not to speak for him. But uh, to, like, preface, I've cooled a little bit on the movie. Um, I really loved it when we saw it at TIFF. And, I mean, like, as festivals can do sometimes, you get a little, like, too into it. But I did – I do still really, really like it. Um, And I see – I see the flaws, like mentioned in the article Zach talks about and the reviews um, in your your intro. But in the end, like, I just – I was really taken with the visuals and like just and all the effort that goes into that. Like, I mean, it's definitely one of those movies where like the efforts on the screen uh, for better or worse. But I think it's still entertaining through all that. 
And then I also think the emotional arc of Kat, of the main character, is, like, really touching and fulfilling. And, like, I really enjoyed being a part of that journey. I was surprised the movie um, wasn't as much about Key and Peele as I thought it would be. Like, it's their characters. Like, their characters are kind of side characters in the movie um, to an extent. But I love just the idea of her as a teenager. It's a little, like, inside outy, honestly, in a lot of ways. But, like, as her as a teenager, just having to, like, deal with the more complicated, like, the demons inside her, those emotions, as well as the positive things, um, and use all of that to, like, fully, uh, like, realize who she is as a person, as, like, teenagers have to do. Like, emotions are complex, like, life is complex. This movie is very complex, as I know we'll probably get into. Um, But I just, I do, I did really enjoy it, uh, even though I've cooled on a bit, but I'll pass it over to Andrew. Yeah, um, I was really expecting to love this movie. I think that on paper, everything I knew about it on the front end, and even some things I learned about it when the movie like started at TIFF uh, made it seem like a movie that was just designed in a lab for me to be obsessed with it, right? It's, it's, by, it's the next movie by the director of Coraline. He hasn't made anything since Coraline. That is a movie that I have often referred to as my favorite movie. Um, it's him working with Jordan Peele, who has done such great things. It's, it's the reunion of Key and Peele. Um, it's stop motion. It, I, you know, it's, it's about demons. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's also about like the school to prison pipeline, uh, which is a brave thing for a kid's movie to be about. Um, to, to say Andrew was on the hype train prior to seeing this at TIFF is yeah. an understatement. And like, yeah, I you were much more hyped for it than I was, it's, actually. You know, it's... it would be um, maybe expected for me to dislike it just because I have hyped it up so much and like nothing could ever live up to that expectation in my head of what this movie could be, right? Um, but now that I've had, uh, you know, a couple months at this point, or over a month to, to sit on it and, and a chance to rewatch it. I feel pretty validated in my initial feeling, which is that this movie feels like a pretty big disappointment. Um, there are things about it that I like, there are things about it that are charming. Um, I, I really like, you know, little intricacies of the animation, like the way that, uh, you know, when she walks into her room, like the radiator is, is doing this like little wavy motion and, um, I, I like a lot of the textures of, uh, the, the, the world of the danged. Um, but you know, this, this story just doesn't, if it doesn't feel like it's done justice, um, every individual element of it is interesting, but there's so many of them that they crowd each other out. And, uh, I don't feel that sense of emotional catharsis for Kat because I feel like her character sort of gets lost along the way. Um, in the same way that Key and Peele's characters get lost along the way. Like, just nobody gets enough screen time. Um, it, it doesn't feel like this lived-in world with real stakes. Um, everything feels like a schematic for this larger theme that Henry Selick is trying to get across about uh, capitalism and industry and, and the prison industrial complex and stuff. Um, but, like... And and that's cool. Like I'm all for Henry Selleck, 
um, kind of getting um, really ambitious and, and and radical with his um, you know political ideas of, of his movies, um, but it it kind of it feels like it comes at expense of the actual movie <laughs> to me. Um, and I guess one thing that I like about Coraline is that it's so um, kind of open and am- ambiguous and this movie feels very literal like it is insistent on wanting to spell out all of its ideas for you um but maybe that's more of a jordan peele thing than a henry Selleck thing i don't know yeah that's 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 what i was gonna say i'm like that like your description of there's a lot of interesting things going on that all try to convolute into one sounds like jordan peele's nope um because i'm like that just seems like what jordan peele's been doing lately where he has all these different fascinating ideas that he kind of wants to get into and then tries to get into them all at once and then it just kind of convolutes everything um yeah i i i think my my um my how i felt about this movie didn't take a like a giant dive but dipped a little bit on the second viewing um I do think, you know, like there are these really fascinating elements. The, the, like you mentioned, the school to prison pipeline is, is, is such a fascinating topic to get into in like a children's, you know, in, in a children's movie. Um, you have this whole thing about the decay of American towns um, and, and like the loss of, you know, black owned businesses leading the towns, which is kind of interesting um you have uh a little bit of of uh of uh you know religion and capitalism in there you know dipped in there a little bit but yeah you kind of have all these different things all firing at once and you never really are like quite honestly you could have taken you know one or two of those and just kind of run with it and but the the bad thing is that it also doesn't leave enough time to really flesh out the um the the world of the you know the 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 souls of the dang the world of the, of the dang and kind of like get into that that kind of wicked um demonic kind of level because that also is is kind of super fascinating because yeah it's a reed's point key and peel are really fun when they're together because they're just kind of riffing off of stuff and doing you know it, it, it doesn't feel like it's necessarily scripted. It's more just them kind of talking in a room for them for the most part. But those moments are a little bit few and far between because then it kind of gets stuck into um, some plot stuff. But at the same time, it's such a, as I said, I talked about last week with Nightmare Before Christmas, you know, there's something about stop motion animated films that I'll give kind of a, um, a pass to just because especially with Henry Selleck, like the intricacy of, of like the world of how it's textured of how things move and how things like the motion of things is just so, is so fascinating, but also just so, um, like you can just feel the hands and the efforts on everything. And so I think while, you know, yeah, I need I need a tighter script and a better story. Um, the the like care and dedication of just like the craft of doing stop motion motion animation. Like I'm much more willing to give that like a stop motion movie a pass compared to like a live action movie or a computer animated movie. Just because I'm just like yeah, they're putting in way more work than you would on on something else. Um, so I still I'm still positive on this movie, but I also don't like 
not see the the points that you bring up, Andrew. Uh, Michael, um, I liked it. This was my first time seeing it. I did not attend TIFF, um, and I watched it on Netflix, like uh, like the majority of people will, I guess. Um, and I liked it. I feel exactly the same way about Andrew in terms of like the screenplay and story. Like I did not feel very connected, like, or invested in what was happening on, in terms of like dramatics. Um, but I didn't care that much about that. I mean, it would have made the movie better had I been, but I was pleased enough with just like existing in like this you know, world. Um, I just, I just really like Henry Selleck stop motion films, even like, and they're all kind of to varying degrees. They're all kind of problematic on screenplay levels with the exception of Coraline. Coraline is like the one that sticks out as his most cohesive film and his most patient film. Like it's very slow and not zany compared to like literally all of the other films that I've seen of his, which I like all of them. Uh, but like, Nightmare Before Christmas, like, works okay as a story, but it's got a lot of stuff going on, right? And it's very zany and very, like, throwing things at you all the time because it's got all these visual ideas. And James and the Giant Peach is very kooky and basically doesn't work, I don't think, as a movie. It doesn't really have much of a plot. It doesn't. It's just like, hey, we're on a peach and stop motion <laughs> and uh, there's mechanical sharks and stuff. We're on a peach. Stuff. We're on a peach. Uh, it's giant. Um and then Monkey Bone, which is like his weird, like live action uh, hybrid movie, which I guess James and the Giant Peach is kind of too, but this is more so live action. Like, again, that movie doesn't work at all on a screenplay level. And I don't really like that movie um, because it's barely stop motion. Um, I think that I just really am into the specific aesthetic that um, uh, Henry Selleck brings. We were talking off mic um in between these episodes that he often has these like really big name collaborators like Tim Burton or Jordan Peele or, or, or someone like that. And I think that in all of those movies, you can see kind of the hallmarks of his collaborators. But when you look at his body as a whole, there is like a very cohesive element of like how the stop motion works in all of those movies, like these really kind of angular, like impossible looking characters, um, the way that they move around is very like springy and uh, kind of sharp and abrupt, um, even for stop motion. Um, this kind of like macabre and gross sense of uh, like uh, like visual gags. And I just love all that stuff. Like, for instance, um, the beginning of this movie shows the death of Kat's parents. And the reason that that happened is like a very Henry Selleck way of it happening, which is that They've been at a carnival and cat takes a bite out of a candied apple. And this like worm, these like this like double headed worm, like just pops out of the apple and she screams and it like distracts her parents from the road and they crash and die. Um, and it's kind of meant, it's meant to be sad, but like, it's got that very Henry Selleck thing of, first of all, you have this grotesque creature just like kind of springing up, um, in a way that's is kind of geometrically impossible in terms of like, how is this thing in the apple? It's like gross and off-putting, but it's also, um, I don't know. There's just something really mesmerizing about it. Like, I think the worm has like a hat on or something like that. Like, it's kind of fun. Um, I don't know. I just really like that stuff. And I think that like, as we've seen 
like uh, computer animation become like the primary mode that like American animation works um, with maybe like a side like undercurrent of like anime's influence. What's been kind of slowly lost from American feature animation is this kind of zany Looney Tunes-esque quality that used to be like very central to like American animation's DNA. And I think Henry Selleck carries that forward in a way that is reminiscent of like kind of old shorts and cartoons and that sort of thing, but also like very specifically his because of that, um, the very distinctive character designs and the very distinctive like sense of humor that is blended in with the kind of like visual gags. And I don't know, I just like existing in a movie that's like that. I think a, a great example of a just a character design that is like very Henry Selleck, but also is, you know, com- <laughs> communicating things about the character and it is like humorous and amusing and, and kind of macabre is the uh, the design of the nuns who they refer to as the penguins. Yes, <laughs> yes I love that. Like, come up to the girl's like waistline basically um, and one of them has just this like really pointy <laughs> face like you just kind of hunched over as like this all this one shape um, is is just incredible design um yeah i feel like honestly like the the fact that the visuals are so intricate it further complicates it right so like all of like maybe thematically who knows what if henry Salk was trying to comment too much thematically on religion but he wanted to like make the nuns this way because whether he thought it was funny or interesting or like the way he sees them like you know i just i feel like um he's very visuals first in this movie, which is maybe where a lot of the flaws come from. And Jordan Peele's very like big ideas first, like details later. Um, So I don't know. I just like, there's so many visuals that I just really love. Like the roller coaster, I think is hilarious all the time in hell is really funny. um, I think, which is all the key, a lot of the key and Peele stuff. Um, And then, the climax, I think, is visually interesting, although it's, like, probably the messiest part of the movie. Um, uh, but I just... If it didn't have, like, the super interesting visuals that, like, maybe I'm giving it more of a pass on, too, or, or and, like, the emotional catharsis that, like, I feel watching it for Kat's character, uh, then I would probably be fully with you. Because the plot is, like, wild. Uh, or just, like, overly complex. The visuals are kind of um, there's there are multiple modes that they work in too, um, which is kind of a. I mean, it can be <coughs> even more um, dis. Um, what's the word I'm I'm looking for here? Um, Disheveled. It, it it sort of like unbalances you a little bit because the no, that's that's not the word I'm looking for. But anyways, like when the movie opens. We're in Cat's youth, and the style of the the character designs is more simplistic than it is for most of the movie, right? Because we're sort of seeing the world through a child's eyes. Um, And then after her parents die, we get this very, very brief vignette of like her her like childhood post um, parents' death in in short form and that is depicted as like this almost CG looking like silhouette space. Um, 
And then we jump to the world of the danged, which is different visually from both of those things. And everything looks like it's made out of folded paper. Um, and then we jump into cat in the, the modern day, which is something closer to what we're used to is like the Henry Selleck house style from Coraline. But it is, it is doing the like anomalisa thing of like letting the, the seams show. And like, you can see where the characters faces have been kind of like stapled together. Um, and it <clears throat> jumps back and forth between a couple of those modes uh, many times. Um, destabilizing is the word I was looking for. Like the whole movie seems like kind of visually unstable um, in the same way that it's um, like narratively unstable. And if I wanted to be like really generous to the movie, I would say that that's like a point to its credit that like all this kind of, uh, um, I don't know, mishmashiness of the movie is by design. Um, but I don't, I don't know that uh, it, it, that is actually a feature on the script level. <laughs> I dig it. I dig it though. Like I dig that, like the whole movie feels like teetering. Like it makes sense that like Zach was talking about that Henry Selick, like intentionally didn't use like the full spectrum of animation technology available to him. And I think that the movie feels like, like as a, like better for that because it, I don't know. The whole thing has this like woozy feeling and there are parts of it where it really comes together really well. Like for instance, um, all the, people who are raised from the dead, like are constantly like falling to pieces and having to be like put back together and stuff. Or like, um, the dude, his eye keeps like rolling and he's got to like whack his head and like the eye will spin around and like come back. Like the, the feeling that like the characters are kind of like in this constant state of flux of how, how tightly sewn together are they? I don't know. Like, I just, I dig that style. Like, I think it just looks cool. I also, you know, um, emotionally like in terms of the beats of the story this one i think reminded me more of the the movie that followed at like a paranorman more than uh than Coraline. you know it's kind of a movie that's trying to um i kind of i think kind of reach this emotional catharsis you even think of like the scene late in the movie where uh, uh, cat is kind of having to fight like her own internal demon. You know, it, it feels very similar. Oh, there's that world too. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and like that, in like just that that whole sequence reminds me a little bit of how they animate the the Norman and the uh, the girl sequence at the the kind of climactic sequence sequence of that movie. But that one, I think, just kind of is able to thread the the different storylines a little bit more fluidly together um i think that's just like honestly it's not like a complete wash like i just kind of feel like there's like little threads of the script that you just need to kind of tie together more like you know it's that's that's what's difficult because it's like you know getting into like private prisons and stuff is a very like complicated uh convoluted issue that has that like um, is like a web of affects a web of different things, but I'm like because of that you could connect to all these things by the one thing, and I think it tries to kind of it just doesn't f- as fluidly do that as I feel like it probably could have. There's um, I, I think the scene where she fights like this manifestation of her childhood trauma um, is a really good example of of where 
the visual, like what the movie's doing visually and what the movie's doing narratively seem to be like at odds with one another. Um, because she, A, like <clears throat> the rules for like what any, how any of this stuff works is not established, right? What exactly a hell maiden is and what exactly that like hand bite thing that she has is and what exactly, um, uh, the 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 nun who kind of like takes her under her wing like what her story and relationship to all this stuff is like all that stuff is a little unclear what is this like redemption room that she takes cat to right uh, but it visually looks cool and like you can get into it on that level um but then when cat gets like sucked into the wall um and is like ready to you know actually make contact with her childhood self um, then the movie cuts away and we see something else happen. I, I even forget what it is now because the movie like feels like it doesn't may have like a logical sequence in my brain. Um, and then eventually we cut back and she's like in that interior space, kind of like when Coraline gets sucked into the, like the mirror world. And like, she talks to the souls of these children who've been eaten by the Beldum in, in that movie. Um, and, like, by the time we're back there, I think we would spent so much time on the other scene that I had forgotten what was happening with Kat over here. Um, like, I just keep sort of losing the immersion and the flow, like, being in a, a flow state with this movie. Um, because I'm constantly having to be like, oh, who are these people again? Like, how does this connect to all these other things? And, and I felt that less on a rewatch, but I still felt pretty, like, disoriented <laughs> regularly by it. Yeah, I I, I kind of I just wish, because I think I I really I really responded to a lot of like what it's trying to tell through the story. I also really responded to Cat as a character, like she's just really cool. She's super cool. Like like I just think of that. I remember like I kind of just got this like jolt of excitement when you first when she first gets to the school and she like you know cuts up the. Uh, the uniform that they wear and then like rolls out with the boots blaring like the punk music with the giant boom box and it's just like walking through the hall like it's like like i just kind of like the energy that the um the voice actress lyric ross brings to that character um if that's what kind of bums me out um that you know they just kind of introduce they introduce like a little bit of just kind of too many too many people you know and, and it kind of again it shadows her it shadows um the the Wendell and wild i mean I, I think that kind of it's a yeah i don't know i don't know if this uh, if it's a <laughs> i feel no offense to jordan peele i feel like it's more of a jordan peele issue where it's just kind of like throwing all the darts at the wall at once um it seems to be an increasingly Jordan Peele in your, show. In your intro. I would be curious because in your in your intro, Henry Selleck mentioned that like this was like an existing story treatment that Peele came and co- collaborated with, and I I am curious. I mean, I can I you know we can we've speculated you know okay like uh, a lot of these ideas you know maybe have come from Jordan Peele or whatever, but I'm curious like you know what that initial movie would have looked like. Um, without like collaboration from Jordan Peele. Um, Cause I, I guess I never, I always feel like that Henry Selleck is more interested in like 
kind of zany like carnival movies than he is with like ideas uh in terms of like screenplay dramatic ideas um yeah and none of his other like, movies have like a thematic point they're coming to really like you can draw conclusions from Coraline but it's not really leading you there in, in yeah, a really but even that way. is an adaptation of uh of a Neil Gaiman a fairly tight Neil Gaiman novella um and it's fairly faithful to the Neil Gaiman novella so it has like that kind of structural backbone that Henry Selleck I know for a fact that Henry Selleck didn't bring to that movie because he's taking it from the book but like this movie I don't know like I can imagine a movie that's not too different um, but that doesn't even gesture towards some of these bigger ideas. And so it's not as bothersome that like, it's not connecting these ideas because the movie itself exists in this kind of just bizarro land, like state where we're just like, I don't know. There's, I, I think about like, um, Mad God, a movie that, uh, Andrew and I watched, um, earlier this year, which is, uh, directed by Phil Tippett, um, like a special effects guy. And like there is like this kind of maddening sense that everything has import. While at the same time, most of the movie is just like, Oh, and here's another crazy gross thing. And you're just watching that like over and over again. Um, and like, I don't know, there's something about the world of stop motion that kind of invites these like weird, messy movies where they're not always very well suited to like these kind of like cohesive, like, uh, like literary analyses. And I don't know if it's like, there's something about the production style, but I even, I think about like, um, I don't know, like even like, I mean, Ardman is more grounded than Henry Selleck, but like even those movies, like the Shaun the Sheep movie or, um, uh, like the Wallace and Gromit stuff, um, like those are always more interested in like the kind of like in the moment, like, gags or interesting like design choices than they are with like a story that we care about uh even though like those movies i think are more successful at making a story we care about than this i don't know like it i kind of love that the world of stop motion has maintained this scruffiness because it's it's never been commercially successful enough to have like a kind of like totemic like disneyfication of it right like like it's never really been a gentrified um like like medium like cgi is or like uh i mean cell animation is kind of a weird state now too but like cell animation at least has like it's like respectability like a lot of cell animation if someone's going to go out of their way to do cell animation now it's going to be something like a like a cartoon saloon movie which i like but it is a kind of like like a like a, a, a stately affair um yeah there's like a prestige attached yeah to whereas it. these yeah. like stop motion still just feels like weirdos are at it and i i don't know this yeah. is a movie that is just a weird <laughs> like a movie for weirdos like made by weirdos and it i don't know i guess it doesn't i, I guess i'm like wrapping around to the point i originally made which is that like the narrative stuff doesn't really bother me because i'm just like this movie's strange this is not a movie that feels like could have been made in any other medium. Also, I think like in terms of like horror for children, I think I really appreciate that this movie like takes kids seriously and that they could like have some access to these ideas and not just like sometimes animated movies take kids seriously in terms of like emotions and stuff like that. But this one is like literally like complex sociological ideas. Um, and it's like, 
maybe putting them forward. I mean, maybe not enough, but maybe like putting them forward so like kids could consider and like kids could be smart enough to do that, which like reminds another movie we talked about earlier. Like I think Turning Red does the same thing with like some specific, some like very specific like adult perceived uh, things uh, and takes kids seriously in that way. And I think is successful. And I think, I don't know. I think I just like appreciated that aspect of it as well. Because I, I have a hard time... I think I don't watch, like, enough actual, like, adult-geared animation to where when I... Most time when I watch an animated movie, I'm still, like, perceiving it, like, for a child, if that makes sense. Like, I'm still, like, wondering what a kid's gonna perceive from... Or, like, get from this movie or see here. Yeah, we have this movie in our Horror for Kids lineup, um, I guess because it's so associated with you know, another filmmaker who has made multiple horrors for kids. Um, but it is PG-13. Um, and it is the the one movie that Henry Selleck has made that feels like it is pitching intellectually above most kids' levels. But I like the idea that he wants kids to engage with those ideas anyway. Um Michael, I'm curious, like, as the one kid haver on the podcast, like, how old do you feel like Jarvis would need to be for you to show him this movie? I don't know. That's a good question. Because I was, as we were beginning this discussion, you were talking about all the ways that narratively it bothered you. Um, And, like, I agree that it is, like, not narratively cohesive. Um, I was curious what an actual child would have thought about this movie. Um, And... It is, I don't know, like, I remember my grandparents had the VHS of James and the Giant Peach, and I watched that movie a lot when I was visiting them. Um, I was a little older than Jarvis is right now. I was, like, eight or nine, probably, when I was doing that. And that feels like a good cutoff, like, upper elementary, like, maybe a little later. I don't know. I guess it, I don't know, um... But anyway, I was I was I was saying, like, I wonder how a kid would react to this, because, like, if you watch a lot of kids movies. I mean, they're either one of two things for the most part. One is they are like slavishly formulaic, like with like, you know, storytelling tropes and like you can see the first five minutes of the movie and you know how it's going to unfold. The other kind of kids movie that is really common is the kids movie that feels like it is just like pasted together from different ideas. And like a lot of the early Disney movies, for instance, are kind of like that, like. Dumbo or um, like uh, Alice in Wonderland or even Bambi to an extent, like feels like there is a sequence of things that they knew that they wanted to include in the movie and they just kind of paste them all together um, at the uh, without a lot of regard to um, how do these things make a cohesive whole. Um, And in terms of that, like Jarvis, who is three, my son is fine with that. Um, like he's kind of like a in the moment kind of person. Um, I don't know when that kind of larger, like narrative consciousness grows in like a child, like, and when they start thinking about like that, this movie builds toward things and that sort of thing. But I don't know, like it is, it is interesting. I, to answer your question, Andrew, I feel like that this is a movie that is probably made for people around the age of the protagonist or maybe a few years younger, if I had to guess. Like, it kind of feels like that. And I'm just just thinking about the cultural signifiers here. Like, 
it takes place in a school, but a school that is like, it's a boarding school, but it's old enough for kids who have like been into juvenile detention and like, she's listening to punk rock music and that's not like inherently like age gated. But when I think about the kind of music that children are interested in, like, you know, abrasive punk music is not like what I, it's, you know, it's, it's no, it's no Halloween. Like this is Halloween, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, like, I don't know, like everything about this movie signals that it's not interested in courting the interests of like very little kids. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. It does. It's, it's kind of grotesque, like in, like in gruesome in points, but it's mostly just like grotesque in how it's designed. And that feels of a piece with like James and the giant peach or something like that. I'm rambling, but, um, this, this feels like a, like a person who in another age would be starting to get into the hot topic kind of movie, you know? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas is a Hot Topic staple. Right, for sure. Place. But that's a movie that I think has, like, a broad, like, age range, right? Like, because it's it doing, like, very broad, like, uh, holiday stuff. Like, Jarvis knows who Santa Claus is. Jarvis knows what Halloween is. Jarvis so he could genius. piece together what that movie was going on. That's right, yeah, Jarvis. He doesn't know what a private prison is. No, I don't think he even knows what a prison is at all. If I asked him, I don't know if, what he would say. Um, yeah, why doesn't Jarvis know what a private prison is? It's about that time. Yes, yeah, it's, it's time to rip off the band-aid with regards to the incarcerated. He, he can't be going through life any longer, you know, not knowing how the school-to-prison pipeline works. For sure, yeah. Yeah, he's got to learn about the carceral state somehow. Maybe Paw Patrol is, like, a good, like, door into that. <laughs> don't even get... Oh, yeah. Dude, I don't want to talk about Paw Patrol. I, I, I show up with with friends with kids who are watching Paw Patrol, and I'm like, there's so much wrong here that I just want to I've get into. I've never actually watched the show. Jarvis doesn't have access to the show, but oh he has a couple gosh. of toys, um, and it makes me a little bit... I'm a little... I feel weird about it, for sure. You should. It's a weird... It's a weird-ass show. <laughs> That's that's that's. I don't want to get into it. That's that's. I'm not every, gonna get. Every parent whose child watches Paw Patrol is legally obligated to show them Wendell. To so like counterbalance. <laughs> I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna text my friends with children and be like, "You gotta watch this thing. Your children are not old enough, but I don't care. They need to learn about the school to prison pipeline since they're learning about private cops. You know how there was the a Paw the Paw Patrol is private. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you after the episode. I'll talk. To, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to include this in the. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, all right. That made me think. Sorry, yeah, you know how there's like point. the there was that Shaun the Sheep show on a Nickelodeon. Like yeah, I'm ap- aware that there was a series. Yeah. yeah, I I mean I watched it. I guess I was maybe too old. Who knows? I have no recollection. Um, but there, it, Wendell and Wild would be a great show. Just like a yeah. twenty-minute oh episode of the demons. It would. Oh my gosh! Like the truest letterbox review I've seen of this movie is another movie that wants to be a TV show. Um, and and like I think these characters are so interesting, and this world is so interesting, and like these um, these like conflicts are so complex that like they just need room to breathe. Like and and. You know, a maybe that's untenable just because stop motion animation is so arduous to make that you couldn't make a whole TV show um, at like the caliber of animation that 
that Henry's telling us. Do they? They're about to here. start charging us for um, sharing accounts. So, but man, Netflix got money. <laughs> yeah, Netflix. They think they're going to charge us for sharing accounts. Are, 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 are they? Yeah. So pretty much what we're saying is pirate Netflix and pirate Disney Plus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, so you can watch right. Lightyear and Wendell and Miles. <laughs> if you take one thing away, that and that Paw Patrol is copaganda that you should not keep away from your children. Um, all right. Well, that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter and Instagram at, at cinematary, and on Letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary, where we list the movies that we talked about in this episode. If you would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash cinematary. Whether it's $1, $5, or $10, uh, we uh, appreciate the patronage. Thank you to our patrons, Cam, Chen Newsom, Corey Willingham, Candace Sisson, Ron Hayes, Teresa Marsathi, Titus Arthur, and Tyler Chandler. We thank you so much for supporting the show. Uh, next week, we're going to be kicking off our next series, which is a quick dive into some of the works of Ernst Lubitsch. Who, uh, Lubing it up. We're going to lube it up, guys. That's why it's so quick. Uh, <laughs> looks like... Yeah. No notes. Um, so we're going to kick it off with I Don't Want to Be a Man, which right now is just me. So that's... Uh, I won't... and I won't get... I won't think about that one too deeply. Um, the Smiling Lieutenant... Uh, the shop around the corner, to be or not to be, and Clooney Brown. So we're gonna get uh get some nice Lubitsch action. But until don't sleep on Clooney Brown, people. <laughs> the movie is a masterpiece. Don't sleep. And with that, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week.